Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management, the only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about investing in the market when it's at all-time highs. Justin, I feel like it was just like a few weeks ago, we were talking about our year in review and like, hey, what's what's the market going to have in store for us this year? And you know, we're not even through the first month. We're recording this as of January 25th, 2024. And Market the market being the S and P is at all time highs. How are you feeling about that? I feel so good. I love all time highs, and all time highs are not a reason to run, not a reason to worry. Um, so I'm feeling good. How are you feeling, Jared? I'm feeling great, man. I'm feeling great. Um, I think a good place to start is like kind of like exactly what you talked about. It's there's this weird kind of dichotomy where. At all time highs, it creates it's, it elicits two responses, right? Either, hey, I'm euphoric because like it's all time highs, markets are up, I'm feeling good, or all time highs, surely things must be going down soon, right? And so I think it's important that like a good place to start is just I think in this episode we're really going to answer the question of hey, is are all time highs a good time to invest? If I'm an oil and gas investor or an energy trader and I have a big lump sum, what should I do with that? And then just kind of like recontextualizing why all-time highs are, are a good thing. So, Justin, I think the first place to start, there's this great chart um, that Callie Cox put together uh, using just her Bloomberg terminal. And it looks at investing in the S&P uh, 500 when it's at a record high versus any other day. And on average, you are better off investing at an all-time high than any other day over a five-year period, a three-year period a six month and a six month period, right? So like the other, the other, the periods of time where you're better off investing in the other day over one month period, three month periods, uh, and the 10 year period, right? So it's about split half and half, depending on the time series of which, which in terms you're better off, you know, better off investing at the S and P record high or investing in any other day. Uh, does that pass the smell test for you, Justin, or, or does that, do, do you feel like do you feel like that's right? Or are you surprised by that? I think everything you just said is something that if you're going to invest um, and be a long term investor, uh, which everyone should aspire to to do that, you must understand. I you you need to memorize. Uh, I'm trying not to exaggerate while I riff here, while I ramble here, but I'm going to. You literally need to memorize uh, what Jared just said. It is foundational to understand that when you're looking at a broad index, a, a basket of hundreds and hopefully even thousands of publicly traded stocks, you must understand that when that broad index that has hundreds or thousands of companies, when it reaches an all-time high, it is not a reason to freak out uh, and you know, a huge foundational aspect of free markets uh, free market capitalism is creative destruction. Um, the idea that the broad economy, the broad market will continue to push forward. Great companies will find ways to add significant value to shareholders 
And uh, the future expected returns are still very good. Now, there's a bunch of distinctions there, but when you're looking at a broad market with hundreds or thousands of publicly traded companies, you must memorize, you must know, you, you must know this like the back of your hand, that it is not a time to depart uh, and that there is still significant future opportunity. Jared, we probably don't even have this number in front of us. Do we have any idea how many all-time highs uh, there were from 2010 to 2019? Justin, I don't have those specific dates, but I do have the number of all-time highs since 2013. There were 340 all-time I'm highs. I'm shocked since- you have that. When I asked that question, I was just thinking, man, I'm setting Jared up for failure here. Why would I do this? So I'm very impressed. Yeah, 340 all-time highs since 2013. 340. Okay, Jared, I want to make one quick point. So that was since 2013, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's just say that you are on number 100 of 340. So that that stat started in 2013. So let's there were 340 all-time highs. So let's say that number 100 of 340, let's just say that that happened, I don't know, in 2016. Uh, 2016 was also a really volatile start to the year in that market, uh, in that year. Um, so there was a market correction uh, early on. So you reach... You reach an all-time high, let's say end of 2015, hypothetically, and you start to think, man, I'm really freaked out. This is number 100. There's been 100 all-time highs in the last two or three years. This is frothy. We need to get out. What goes up must come down, right? Uh, You know, you don't want to chase a bubble. Uh, Insert any other bubble example here. Um, And so you start to get freaked out. You're thinking, hey, this is the 100th all-time high in the last two or three years. Surely... This is bad news. And then a correction comes. You get really freaked out. And you're like, well, yeah, I was right. I mean, this is going to be disaster. It's going to be the Great Recession all over again. And oh, my goodness, what has the market done since that point on the 100th all-time high? It's up significantly. Your money has just compounded to an incredible degree. And so I just kind of use that little anecdote to say, Man, there's been 340 all-time highs. And I remember, I remember sitting with clients in 2015, 2016, 2017, and constant worry of, hey, 2008 was seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago. Everything's really high right now. It's, it's going to come crashing down. And my message was, no, it's probably not. And depending on your time frame, it's probably going to go up a lot more. Totally. And that's the thing is right. The like all time highs are like a, like a reality of the market, right? One of the things you and I talk about just in a ton is you have to be a long-term optimist to invest in the markets, right? Like you have to believe that companies are going to wake up, try to add value, get better every day and continue to develop, right? Like if you, if you don't believe companies are going to try to do that, there's kind of really no reason to invest anyway, right? You have to believe that companies are going to invest their time, talent, and infrastructure to making the world a better place and making shareholders more money, right? And if that is the case, this machine will continue to make all-time highs. The interesting thing about that chart about uh, you know comparing returns with S&P 500 at record highs versus any other day is... Over all the time periods mentioned, one month, three month, six month, 12 month, three year, five year, 10 year, all of them on average were positive 
And the other thing is the longer your time horizon, the better the returns were, right? So just this, this also supports, Hey, we want to invest in the S and P at record highs because it's always making record highs. But you know, the two of the best ways to make sure that, you know, you're not, you're not top, top ticking the market is, Hey, I'm, I'm investing long term and I'm not trading it. Right. I, I do think it's important that we contextualize, right? We talked about the 340 ish all time highs since 2008, but. That's a piece of the story, right? Like from 2001 to 2012, there were nine. Oh my. Right? And so it's an important reminder that, you know, which, which it just simply, which scenario would you want, <laughs> right? Like if you think about like a bad market is one that is not making all-time highs. And, you know, the, the 01 to 2012, it includes, you know, the dot-com bust and the great recession, right? The GFC. And so, right. Like what is the alternative is, Hey, we cannot be making all time highs and have a really, really bad market that's trying to recover. Um, and of course, if you go back before that, if you go 89 to 2000, there's over 300 all time highs in that period. Right. So the interesting little anecdote is, Hey, these things tend to be lumpy and, you know, we're rooting for all-time highs because if you think about the two, the three different time scenarios I gave you, 01 to 2012 is the least compelling from an investment return perspective and the least compelling from an uh, all-time high perspective, right? All-time highs mean more money, um, just plain and simple, right? Your, your, your dollars invested are reaching new heights, right? Um, and so you have to be invested to take advantage of those and you want it reaching new heights because that means your portfolio is continuing to accumulate and increase in value. And I know that sounds elementary, but it's not. Okay. I want to just repeat real quickly everything you said from 1989. Uh, okay. 1989 to 2000, there were about 327 all-time highs. Uh, Jared, this is the S&P 500. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. 89 to 2000, we have over 300 all-time highs. 2013 to present, um, we have three, again, over 300 all-time highs. Looks like 340 is the number uh, based on exactly when they're in date when they produce this data. Now, there's a section there that is 2001 to 2012. As Jared mentioned, there were only nine all-time highs. I am going to talk a little bit about the psychology of investing, but before I do that, Really important to just point out here. So 1989 to 2000, incredible times. 2001 to 2012, pretty tough, pretty difficult. And then really incredible times since 2013. So I think it's important to really evaluate what cycle in your life are you in as an investor? Because when you look at this, you know, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Uh, Jared, if you can retire. Uh, in 1989 with a big nest egg and you retire, you're no longer working. And, you know, if that's in 1989 and you have equity exposure, your nest egg just keeps compounding. It keeps growing. Uh, It makes retirement pretty stinking easy uh, if you can have just an incredible decade of growth. Same thing if you retire in 2013 or obviously, you know, 2009, if you can weather the storm, still have a bunch of equity exposure. Uh, and you can see big growth for the first 10 years of retirement. But if you retire in 2001, well, you better have a war chest and you better have the ability to have enough exposure in fixed income assets to pay for the next few years of living expenses so that 
uh, when you wake up three years later and the market's still down 28%, hypothetically, you don't have to sell your stocks. You can continue to pull from fixed income, pull from your war chest instead of your equity exposure. But if you're in a different life cycle, maybe you're not retired. Maybe you're 40 and you're planning on working for another 15, 20 years with a fantastic income. Well, it's really not the worst thing in the world to be 40 in 2001 if you're able to maintain your high income and continue to pile money into the market every month and just continue to buy um, at different prices and capture uh, the different equity prices over the past 20 years. Um, and so understanding what cycle are you in as an investor uh, is really critical. If you're 40 and you're not planning on living off of your money and retiring anytime soon, it's okay if the market struggles. Uh, and if you're retired, it's okay too. It just means you have to have a very detailed dynamic income plan. Uh, Jared, any thoughts on that before I talk about psychology of investing real quick? No, I think that's great, right? Like, because, you know, there is a portion of our audience that pro is probably a young investor who sees all time highs and goes, ah, I'm rooting for cheaper prices because I know I'm not going to be touching this money for decades, right? Yeah. But even going back to the data we have, right? Like, you're a little better off by investing in any other days over a 10 year period. On average, you're still up 124% by investing in the S&P at a record high versus like over your one month period, you're up on average 0.3%. So, right, like investing in all-time highs isn't going to make the difference. Saving aggressively and having a long-time horizon is. So even if you're young and you're seeing all-time highs and you're saying, man, I wish I could get in at cheaper prices, odds are there's this is going to be the cheapest prices because the market's going to make more all-time highs. Absolutely. When you think about being a good investor, your behavior is a massive factor uh, in investing. Your The psychological kind of viewpoint perspective that you carry into investments matters a great deal. There's one idea in that that I think you must adopt. Uh, and I'm going to define it. I've heard people define it as double think. And so what is double think? It's the ability to simultaneously think two things that appear to be totally at odds with each other, totally opposite. Um, and so with investing, you need to both be a, you need to be a massive optimist. If you can't dive into this idea and believe it, make this conviction your own, that tons of companies are going to wake up over the next 10 years. And those companies are going to create massive value for their shareholders. If you cannot be an optimist and, and really have a firm conviction there, you're going to struggle as an investor. So you must be a big time optimist. But on the other hand, you also need to be a pretty harsh critic. So on the other hand, while you're an eternal optimist, a huge optimist, you need to be constantly asking the question, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst scenario that could happen here? And, and a really good example of double think that I've heard is Tiger Woods, when he would approach any golf shot, you know, so say it's after his tee shot and he's in the middle of the fairway and let's say he's 190 yards from the green. Well, if you're in that position, uh, you know, you're you're starting to evaluate, well, OK, is is the am I trying to make this golf shot uphill or is it downhill? Is it into the wind or is the wind at my back? Uh, where am I trying to land this thing? Um, is it going to land on a downhill slope and then roll off into, you know, a water hazard? So you're making all of these decisions and Tiger Woods is trying to figure out 
what club should I hit and what swing should I, should I, you know, deploy with that club? So Tiger Woods would engage in double think before he makes that shot. He thinks this club is a terrible idea. And he's kind of going through all of the analysis of why this certain club that he could swing or this type of swing with that club, it's a bad idea. It's not going to work. Here's why I shouldn't do it. But once he makes his final decision of, okay, I'm going to grab my eight iron and I'm going to you know, do this type of swing with my eight iron, he forgets all of that criticism. And he just goes all in on believing this is the right decision. This is the exact club, the exact swing, and this is going to work. So that's a great example of double think. At the same time, in a very short matter of time, you're making decisions, thinking two things that are totally opposite. As an investor, you've got to be able to do this. You've got to be a massive optimist. You've got to believe in the power of free markets and the power of great companies all over the world uh, that are ready and willing to take your shareholder dollars and provide more value back to you. Uh, But at the same time, you need to evaluate, hey, what could go wrong here? What are the holes here? Do I have exposure everywhere? Am I more concentrated than I should be? And so you've got to have a little bit of double thing to be a good investor. Yeah. And right, like this gets back to kind of the power laws we talk about, about a small percentage of stocks driving returns, right? We say the market, meaning the S&P is making all-time highs. But like going back to research we've talked about in the past, um, Bessenbender, a professor at ASU, talks about how from the research he did studying tens of thousands of stocks, basically 4% of stocks are responsible for boosting the market's overall return higher than T-bills, right? So a terrible conclusion to come to would be, hey, were the markets at all-time high? I'm going to hold this individual position indefinitely Um, because- Right, the, the market goes up collectively, but the dispersion of returns. This market's a great example. Do not go up collectively. So you know, this is about investing in a thoughtfully low cost, diversified way. This isn't about picking individual stocks because the range of outcomes is substantially, substantially wider. And Justin, I think that's a, that's an important call out, right? Like people are scared. Hey, we're investing in all time highs. Yes. Uh, all-time high in one index, right? Like the reality, like if, if you're an energy professional, your lived experience is probably a little different, right? Crude oil hasn't made an all-time high since 08, right? Like if you think it was like, uh, you know, over 145 a barrel. Natural gas hasn't made an all-time high since 2005. Um, MSCI, Emerging Markets Index, hasn't made a high since 2021. EFI, uh, Developed Markets Index, hasn't made a high since 2021. Wow. Craziest example. This one just blows my mind. Um, Japan hasn't made an all-time high since 1990. So you've essentially been an investor for 34 years and haven't reached all-time highs, right? And that's not to that's not to make you scared. That's just to paint a picture of hey, all-time high is in one geography, um, and things kind of ebb and flow. And you know, you're you're that's part of being diversified. You're never going to exclusively own the market that's going in all-time highs. Um, and you're never not going to own some of the markets that are struggling if you're globally diversified. That's part of it. But it's, this is just a great reminder of, hey, I, I, need to, I need to be relentlessly bullish and optimistic about the future. But my ability to pick the right index, the right asset, t- and time all those right things is really difficult. And if I'm a diversified investor, I'm going to have stuff that's making all-time highs, and I'm going to have stuff that's struggling, which is part of why you diversify in the first place. 
That's so incredible. So Japan has not had an all-time high in 34 years. Um, I mean, really, all of those are pretty amazing. And Jared, it, it kind of just makes me think that, you know, double think as an investor is massive optimism when you're talking about broad exposure to hundreds, thousands of companies. Uh, and then the other side of the token is you should be pretty skeptical of any individual stock or really targeted concentration of, say, 40 or 50 stocks. Uh, you're, Jared, what was that dispersion um, quote you mentioned that it was? Yeah, four four percent of st- stocks. Uh, I don't know how far back the research goes, but uh, f- about four percent of the stocks over this time period uh, are responsible for boosting the return of the S and P above and beyond Treasury bills. That's man, that's unbelievable, and that's basically the same thing we said in our episode. Uh, was it when we reviewed Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel? Another critical thing that you must you know kind of remember. Uh, when you invest is a lot of people think art investing is unique in the sense that, well, the way you make money in art is you buy 10,000 pieces of art and then you wait 50 years and abracadabra, 30 of them happen to be worth a hundred million dollars. And then the others are, you know, not worth very much at all. Um, and that is true that I'm, I'm, a, I'm not an art expert by any means. I know very little about it, but you know, I can, read books about it and and get the gist. That's how you invest in art. You buy a thousand pieces. Most of them are not going to appreciate very much, but a few very much can. Stock investing is actually very similar. It is very, very similar. The dispersion of mega returns uh, applied to a small number of stocks. And it's tempting to hear that and say, well, that's great. How about I just go pay a financial advisor to pick the 4% of stocks that are going to go way up. You can't do it. You can't do it. No one can. Own, have exposure to everything. And that's how you ensure that you own those 4% of stocks that provide mega returns. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of the like uh, the studies that show what percentage of people think they're above average at something and it's the majority. Oh, okay. um, right. Like did that message of, hey, I can, I can pick the 4% is definitely one of Slight, slight overconfidence. But Justin, I want to kind of ask like an existential question because we talk about value investing on this podcast and it's probably the, probably the double think answer, but I'd love to hear from you. Like, how do we square the idea of investing in all time highs and like being value investors? Are those two, do those two things conflict with one another or is that kind of where the double think comes into play? How do you think about that idea? I think you've got to employ some double think there. Probably a different podcast. Maybe all of this it kind of is an introduction to the momentum factor. Um, but back to your question, I think you've got to have a little bit of double think. And, you know, we like to build portfolios that have great exposure to asset classes that we're able to buy earnings at a more attractive price. Um, and so that means owning some value oriented companies. It means Small cap right now is, is a much more attractive buy than large cap if you're just looking at what's the price I'm paying for the earnings that I'm getting. Um, international, as you mentioned, it's been years since they've been at an all-time high. Uh, and there's great companies internationally that are waking up every day and uh, they're producing earnings. Um, and as an investor, that's what you want to own. You want to own earnings. So, you know, I think that when you hear that, it's kind of like you mentioned, Jared, where it's like, you know, if you're a young investor that 
kind of has these convictions that, hey, I'm a long-term investor. You're wanting some bad markets to invest in. Uh, but you can't go all in on that uh, because even though we love to build exposure that has small cap value international, in addition to the S&P 500, in addition to having exposure in tech and stuff, the reason we don't go all in is because we humbly very much believe that, hey, those value companies, it could still be another six years before they produce some outperformance. And we could still see the S&P continue to lead the charge for another you know, few or several years. And so we've got to have exposure everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I guess I guess small like nuance in terms of like implementation is like, where do your incremental dollars go? Like if you have a lump sum of money, right? We have a lot of people that trade energy or have, you know, variable equity compensation. If you get a big, if you get a big bonus uh, and you're investing at all time highs, hopefully this podcast has convinced you, Hey, I need to, I need to just deploy it. Right. Um, But if you think about being a globally diversified investor, what asset classes are you buying? Right. If you invest a a million dollars into the market, you know, a portion of it will go into the S&P because it is a weighting, but probably a more a higher portion will go to these underperforming asset classes because if the S&P's moved up, it's a higher percentage of its, you know, slight probably slightly over its target allocation, uh making some of these other asset classes below their target allocation, right? So being a globally diversified investor, it allows you to to rebalance and basically trim gains as as things materialize and kind of reallocate to to underperforming asset classes. So I think Right, like if you just own exclusively value companies, uh, you would you'd miss out on probably a lot of this appreciation because large growth has been the place to be in, right? And that's why you know we tilt towards value versus saying, hey, we're going to own exclusively value, right? Because we talk about this ad nauseum in prior episodes, but humility is a big investment underpinning. But so I I think it's not incongruent. Um, It is just a function of hey. How do I allocate portfolios and where are these incremental dollars going? Right. And so all time highs are being made in all asset classes. We're going to, you know, systematically allocate capital uh, based on your investment tolerance and uh, the target weightings of each asset class. Right. That's a bunch of nerd speak for basically sell what's doing good, buy what's doing bad so that it kind of stays in, you know, in line with its long term strategic allocation. So I think there's, there's inherently a little value tilt in rebalancing and reallocating capital as it comes in and the market moves in ebbs. Absolutely. It kind of goes back to, you need to be a huge optimist. And then you also need to kind of have a voice in the back of your head that says, hey, I've got a big concentration to this specific sector or company and it's at an all-time high. And I'll repeat, you know, all-time highs when it's applied to thousands of companies, not a reason to worry. All-time highs when it's applied to one or a few companies. Uh, yeah, you should you should be a harsh critic there. Uh, Jared, I remember, you know, we had our oldest son in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, so we lived there for a few years, uh, after graduating college. And so we're in Annapolis, Maryland, and this is like 2012 or so. So real estate prices there are so expensive, especially in 2012. Um, and gosh, 10 years ago, relative to the Sunbelt, Texas, Arizona, real estate was so expensive in Maryland there. And I remember, you know, talking to some older people there and that had bought a bunch of real estate and their mindset was, oh, it's the best investment you can make. It always goes up. Um, And it's been interesting because, you know, we haven't lived in in Maryland for a decade uh, or more or somewhere around there. Uh, But periodically I'll check it 
in, gosh, even some of the same houses that were on Zillow 10 years ago come on the market and the price appreciation has been like nothing. And you think about that and I just think how in the world could any real estate market not appreciate a ton from 2011 to 2019? Everything appreciated. Everything got more expensive. I mean, Texas like 3 x in that window. Um, and that's even before the pandemic bump. But this local real estate market really didn't move at all um, for a long, long time. And so there's a couple of lessons there. And, you know, one of them is price matters a ton. What you pay for an investment does eventually matter. Uh, so, you know, there is the flip side of what we've already discussed in this podcast is there's a temptation to put all your money in QQQ right now, put all your money in NVIDIA. That's probably the most extreme application of this. And, you know, price matters a ton. The price that you pay for the earnings you get is going to be a significant force in your future returns. Uh, and so it's got to be considered, can't go all in on local markets, on local individual companies, individual sectors. Um, again, it's that double think idea. Uh, and so buy and hold, forget your password. That's not an option when you're talking about an individual stock or a random house that you inherited in Ohio. Yeah, absolutely. But Justin, I think, I think that's a, that's a good place to wrap up, right? Like long-term optimist, a healthy amount of pessimism on individual companies or individual markets to beat that. But we're bullish. We think it's going to be a great year and it might not be, but that still doesn't change the fact that we're bullish. Right. And I think I, hopefully this encourages you to take a step back and remember uh, the long-term optimism that's required to be an investor in equity markets. And we wish you and your loved ones many all-time highs to come. Uh, if you have ideas or questions for future episodes, podcast at brownlingwealthmanagement.com. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.